the text this morning is John 9, verse 24 to the end of the chapter. John 9, verse 24. A second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow... We don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, He is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, can I add my welcome to that already given? It's lovely to see all of you, and a particular welcome to Jeremy and Lyndon, who've traveled in from Worcester to be with us this morning. They were part of our fellowship here for a number of years before they relocated to that part of the world. It's great to have you here. And a very warm welcome also to Joseph, who was with us back in 2020, and uh, there was a slight hiatus in 2021, but we're delighted to welcome you back too, brother, as you begin the first of your three years in the BTH down at George Whitfield College. So great to have you here too. Well, friends, let's, um, let's have our Bibles open in front of us. If you haven't got a Bible, please, uh, and you'd like one, please raise your hand. Uh, someone will bring a Bible to you. And uh, let's have it open at John chapter 9. And... Uh, 
as always, we'll ask for the Lord's help as we begin. Our gracious God, you are so glorious that the heavens cannot contain you. And yet you've assured us that you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. And we pray that just as Jesus left the majestic glory to dwell among men, that you would come and dwell among us this morning by your spirit, through your word. We pray that your divine finger will help us as we try to read your word that your finger will point with great skill into our hearts, applying your word to each one of us individually. And most of all, we pray that as your word both humbles us and lifts us up with a great sense of gospel grace and joy, we pray that we might enjoy communion with you as dearly loved children enjoying communion with their father. And these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the experience of just one man um, who had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Uh, This man had been blind from birth, uh, which, if you remember, meant that he couldn't get a job and uh, he was forced to beg. In fact, his situation was every bit as desperate as the beggars that we see on the streets of Cape Town every day. But when Jesus saw him, without any invitation from the man himself, Jesus did two things for him. First, he he opened his eyes physically so that the man could see and begin to live a normal life. But much more importantly, he opened his eyes spiritually so that this man came to see the truth about Jesus. Now, we've said before, haven't we, that John is an extremely careful writer. Uh, He chooses every detail with a very specific purpose in mind. And uh, it seems to me that in choosing this particular story, which you won't find, by the way, in the Synoptic Gospels, it's only in John, it seems to me that John is looking to encourage those people who are right on the point of putting their trust in Christ. The evidence for this in the chapter is so strong that I can't help thinking that when John sat down to write this story, He had a specific person in mind, that maybe it was a neighbor, maybe it was a friend, or a member of the family. This person has read what John has written about Jesus up to this point. He wants the new life that Jesus is offering. But before he makes a commitment, he wants to know what life's going to be like afterwards. And he's got some very real questions. For example, Uh, What if my friends and relatives turn against me? If they do, uh, how will I know what to say? Uh, How can I know which is the right church to go to, the church that's going to teach the gospel to me uh, accurately and faithfully week by week? 
And how can I have a growing relationship with Jesus when actually I know so little about him? And so I think to answer questions like that, John records the experience of the man born blind after Jesus opens his eyes. And he shows us four things that Jesus does for every new believer in every age. Now, this is not a comprehensive list, obviously. Jesus gives us many other wonderful things as well. But every new believer can expect to receive at least these four things from Jesus Christ. In a sense, they are both gifts from Christ and experiences of Christ. And you'll see what that means as we go through. Let me tell you what these four things are up front so you know where we're going. This passage teaches that when Jesus opens our eyes, he gives us, number one, growing courage. That is, uh, courage to face the opposition that every single genuine Christian will experience at some time or other. So the reason, for example, that Christians in persecuted countries keep going is because Jesus gives them growing courage. Secondly, when Jesus opens a person's eyes, he gives them growing wisdom. Uh, wisdom, that is, to, to look beyond the surface details of our daily lives to see what God is actually doing behind the scenes. Thirdly, Jesus gives growing comfort. Um, the experience of knowing that Jesus is with us in a special way when we're suffering for being Christian. And fourthly and lastly, he gives us growing light. Uh, that is the light of ultimate, dependable, unchanging truth that gives us confidence to live the Christian life in the darkness of this world. And we'll spend most of our time on that. So, let's look at those. Firstly, when Jesus opens our eyes, he gives us growing courage. Now, what I think is immediately obvious in this passage is that this man has gospel guts. Last week, we saw that he'd been blind from birth, and uh, when Jesus took pity on him and gave him sight... It caused, didn't it, a major sensation. Uh, the, the religious authorities were asked to give their opinion. And uh, in this passage, the man is pulled in for a second round of questioning. Remember, will you, that these people are hostile to Jesus? They've already said that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ will be put out of the synagogue. And, of course, that would mean losing all hope of finding a job, and it would probably mean losing most of our friends as well. So the stakes for this man are very high. The situation is extremely intimidating. And yet this man isn't the least bit afraid. Uh, although he knows perfectly well that the Pharisees want him to change his mind, 
Look how he responds. It's a very, very remarkable response in verse 27. Have a look at it. The man answered, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled their insults at him. Now, friends, I think that by nature, most of us find official opposition in any context very intimidating. Uh, Whether it's at work or uh, whether it's at the college or whether it's in ministry, it always takes real courage, doesn't it, to stand up to it. But this man is a tremendous reminder, I think, that in the New Testament, the true convert is always willing to stand up and be counted for Christ. Now, no doubt there are times when it's wise for us to keep quiet, but actually I think none of us need any encouragement to do that, do we? Most of us tend to keep quiet when we ought to be speaking up. No, we need to be reminded that Christ does expect his people to be willing to take a stand and to verbalize that stand when called upon to do so. Now, can I say that that is actually what Jesus means when he says that a true disciple is willing to take up the cross? Taking up the cross does not mean putting up with back pain or uh, having a difficult relative for Christmas. Taking up our cross means saying a word for Christ when to do so may well invite hostility and exclusion. That's what it means. And the point is, I think, that this is not a quality that any one of us possesses by nature. We never entirely, I think, lose our fear of speaking out in that way. So think of uh, Timothy. Uh, Timothy, as you know, was the right-hand man of the Apostle Paul. And uh, for some years, Timothy was the leader of the church in Ephesus. And when the Apostle Paul needed someone to go and sort out the mess in Corinth, the man that he picked for the job was Timothy. Now, that was not a small task. Corinth was a disaster in the church. So quite clearly, Timothy wasn't a pushover. And yet, in his second letter to Timothy, Paul has to say this to him, quote, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. In other words, even an experienced church leader can sometimes be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. So we all need help with this. I need it. You need it. And being a Christian means being willing to go to God and to say, make me fearless. Lord, give me the courage to speak out for you. And when we ask him for it, God delights to give us that kind of courage. I think we've got time for one more example. Uh, Quickly turn over, please, to John chapter 19. Gospel of John chapter 19, which is the account of the burial of the Lord Jesus. 
John 19, I'll read from verse 38. It's one of my favorite passages in the gospel, actually. It's lovely. Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, friends, there you have the example of two fine men. Uh, To begin with, both of them were frightened to be known as disciples of Jesus, weren't they? See, Joseph had kept his discipleship A secret, verse 38, Nicodemus had come to Jesus at night, verse 39. He didn't want anybody to know that he was doing it. But at the end, at the very moment when it was far more dangerous to be known as a disciple of Jesus, both of them come out into the open. They were willing to be identified as the men who gave our Lord a decent burial. Now, I think that shows the same kind of courage that we find with our friend back in chapter 9. So Jesus gives every true believer growing courage. We'll come back to chapter 9 now, because second, when Jesus opens our eyes, he gives us growing wisdom. Now, this comes out actually very early in the confrontation between the Pharisees and the man born blind. We've said before, haven't we, that the Pharisees were brilliant men. They were not stupid. Uh, They'd had the very best theological education, GWC on steroids. But when they find themselves confronted with this miraculous healing, they refuse to even consider the evidence. Their minds are closed. But look at the man himself. And uh, to see just how extraordinary this is, you need to understand something about the background in the country at that time. Because there's a lot of evidence outside of the Bible that Jewish education in the first century was excellent. But being blind meant that this man hadn't been able to benefit from it. His blindness had deprived him of all of the advantages of that tremendous education. So keep that in mind and notice, will you, his extraordinary powers of reasoning in verses 30 to 33. Uh, The Pharisees, the experts, can't even be bothered to think about the miracle. But this uneducated man thinks carefully about what's happened to him 
And as he does so, he's able to identify five things that tell him something about who Jesus really is. First, right at the end of verse 30, he reasons, Jesus opened my eyes. Now that's a fact. No one can deny it. He was born blind, but Jesus gave him the ability to see for the first time in his life. And so second, verse 31, he says, we know that God does not listen to blatantly sinful people. Therefore, thirdly, also verse 31, Jesus cannot be an ungodly person because God did actually listen to him. Fourthly, verse 32, what has happened to me has never happened before. And therefore, fifthly, verse 33, Jesus must come from God. He couldn't have healed me otherwise. Now, friends, do you see how sharp and clear that is? And all that on the lips of a man with no formal education. And I think what John wants you and I to take away from this is that when Christ comes into a person's life, he, he opens his mind so that they start to think clearly, perhaps for the first time. About ten years ago, uh, Raymond and Alita used to travel out to Mitchell's Plain uh, to do one-to-one -one ministry with some of the folk in one of the churches there. And I remember that they would regularly come back with stories of the extraordinary spiritual insight that God had given to some of the folk that they were working with. These people had no real educational privileges, and yet some of them had a wisdom and an ability to think clearly about things that actually matter that many well-educated, privileged people simply don't have. Now, I think there's a tremendous lesson in that. The lesson is this, don't be put off by the theological experts if Jesus hasn't opened their eyes. The new Christian convert actually knows more about what really matters in this life than the brightest theological brain box if Jesus hasn't given them the new birth. And that's because Jesus gives his disciples the priceless treasure of growing wisdom. Thirdly, John shows us that when Jesus opens our eyes, he gives us growing comfort. Now, whenever anybody um, starts to think seriously about becoming a Christian, they are very early on, I think, painfully aware of the cost of following Jesus. And that cost, of course, is illustrated for us in this man's life at the end of verse 34. That the man has stood by his testimony. He's refused to be bullied by the religious authorities into changing his story. And for his trouble, the religious establishment have thrown him out. And for any Jew, that was actually the worst thing that could happen. It meant uh, no friends, no family, 
no future in mainstream Jewish society. So notice this, quite deliberately, in the very next verse, John makes sure that we know that Jesus heard about it and found him. Notice it wasn't the other way around. The man didn't have to go looking for Jesus. Jesus came and found him. In other words, the bad news of verse 34 is followed immediately by the comfort of verse 35. Isn't that delightful? Now, friends, that actually is the normal pattern in the Christian life. Everyone who's been a Christian for any length of time knows that Jesus is especially present in their lives when they're being persecuted or suffering in some way for Christ's sake. See, Jesus knows all about every trial, every test, every setback we might be facing. And he knows exactly the comfort we need in order to persevere. In the very moment that the trial begins, Jesus comes to be with us. How does he do it? Well, often through the care of other Christians. Um, they might offer practical support or maybe a word of encouragement. Or maybe simply offering to spend time with us so that we, we don't feel that we're facing the situation entirely on our own. A moment ago, um, Raymond reminded us, didn't he, of Alice's mission trip to Colombia in South America back in 2014. And uh, while Alice was there, she spent time with children who had been orphaned, often in the most traumatic circumstances. Uh, their parents had been killed for being followers of Jesus. But you see, these children were then receiving unconditional love and support from the Open Doors Children's Centre and from visiting missionaries like Alice. So the comfort that Jesus gives could be something like that, or it might be something even more wonderful, which is actually what happens here. Because what we learn from the man in John 9 is that when Jesus opens our eyes, fourth point, he also gives us growing light. Now I want you to notice this very carefully, pay close attention to this. It is fascinating to me that the man comes to a far more profound understanding of who Jesus really is after the persecution after the suffering, rather than before. You see, I think in our heart of hearts, we would really all like our relationship with Jesus uh, to grow and mature in stable, calm circumstances without any pain or suffering. But that is not what happens in John 9, and it's not what happens in normal Christian experience. Now, this man is given his greatest experience of Christ while he is still coming to terms with his loss. Notice three things. First, will you notice the humility of the man himself? Jesus asks the man the question that he asks of every seeker. Verse 35, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, do you trust that I am the Son of God? And the man responds with that same humble, teachable spirit that we've seen in him before. Verse 36, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Now, there's no pride there, is there? There's none of the, the arrogance that we hear from so many apparently religious people today. And we're meant to notice that Jesus gives this man the most precious gift any person can have this side of heaven in part because he's humble. Second, notice the compassion of Jesus. In response to the man's question, Jesus says, verse 37, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Now, those of you who are studying John's Gospel at college need to know there's something very special going on here. Because those are exactly the same words that Jesus used to reveal his identity to the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4. And I think it is highly significant in John's Gospel that Jesus gives the fullest and clearest revelation of himself to an excommunicated outcast and to a fallen woman. You know, these are people that mainstream society would consider as totally unimportant. That may perhaps be why John doesn't even tell us their names. But you see, the Lord Jesus looks at the people the world rejects and where man sees failure, Jesus sees tremendous potential. Third, won't you please notice the man's response? Verse 38. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, obviously, this is the climax of the story, the climax of the chapter, and we just need to press the pause button and make sure that we understand the full significance of these words. Because it has been suggested by some scholars that in other ancient manuscripts, the word for worship means no more than to pay one's respects. And so some people say that here the man is doing no more than paying his respects to Jesus. That cannot possibly be right. Uh, think about it with me. Uh, from time to time, uh, Gillian travelled back to the United Kingdom, and uh, whilst we're there, we go and pay our respects to various friends and relatives. It's a good thing to do, it's a right thing to do, and sometimes we have a good time. But whatever we are doing, we're certainly not worshipping them. You need to know that the word in the original that's translated as worship in our Bibles is extremely unusual. John only uses it three times in his book. And the other two contexts are crucial to a right understanding of what's happening at the end of John 9. Because whenever John uses this particular word, he only ever uses it to talk about people worshipping God. So keep a finger in John 9, come back to John 4 for a moment, 
John chapter 4, verse 23. Let me hear those pages rustling. Where Jesus, as you know, is talking to the Samaritan woman. Verse 23, John 4. Jesus says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Same word. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you see this? When John uses the verb worship, God is always the object of the verb. He's the one being worshipped, nobody else. And uh, for your notes, you don't need to turn to it, but the other reference is chapter 12, verse 20, where some Greeks um, were going to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover feast. And uh, quite clearly, the Greeks weren't going to Jerusalem to pay their respects, were they? They were going to worship God. So come back to John 9, because when John tells us that the man worshipped Jesus, what is he saying? Well, he's obviously not saying that he simply was paying his respects. You know, good morning, Jesus, thank you very much. What nonsense. No, he's telling us that this man worshipped Jesus as God. In other words, Jesus has opened this man's eyes so that he can see that Jesus isn't simply a man who's come from God, which is what some people were saying, no. Jesus is God. And therefore he must be worshipped. Because, friends, and this is why I've been labouring the point, that is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who worships Jesus as God. And uh, when I come to that realisation, of course, a whole new life opens up in front of me. A life with meaning and purpose and direction and new friends. A life that's lived in the light that only Jesus can give. Beginning now, stretching on forever. But... As we close, I want you to notice that not everybody gets this. Because in verse 39, Jesus tells us something absolutely vital. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. It's an extraordinary statement, that, isn't it? What does Jesus mean? Well, I think from this story we can say that it means at least this. That when Jesus came to earth, he came as the clearest possible revelation of God to men. And to those people who come to him painfully aware of their spiritual blindness, wanting to know the truth, Jesus opens their eyes so they can see quite clearly who Jesus is and receive the eternal life that he offers. But the tragedy is that not everyone is like that. In this story, the Pharisees, the religious experts, think they already have all the answers. 
But the truth is, truth is they've misunderstood Jesus completely. They are spiritually blind. So you see, in verse 39, Jesus is making a momentous claim. He's saying that the way that men and women respond to the Lord Jesus Christ today anticipates the judgment of the last day. That is an extraordinary thought. What does that mean for us? Well, if Jesus is going to be light for us, we must allow his light to uncover our sin. In other words, we've got to allow his light to expose our deliberate rejection of the rule of God in our lives and bring us to repentance so that we can find forgiveness and be reconciled to God. And Jesus can do that for you this morning before you leave this building. But those who reject his light, those people who continue to reject the rule of God in their lives stay spiritually blind and they have no awareness whatsoever of the eternal consequences. It's actually the worst possible condition any human being can be in. Last week I, I gave the last word to Bishop J.C. Ryle and I'd like to do that again this morning. As we close, won't you listen to this comment on the predicament not just of the Pharisees in John chapter 9, but the predicament of all those people who follow in their footsteps. This is what Bishop Ryle says. When knowledge only sticks in a man's head and has no influence over his heart and life, it becomes a most perilous possession. And when, in addition to this, its possessor is self-conceited and self-satisfied and fancies he knows everything, the result is one of the worst states of soul into which a man can fall. There's far more hope about him who says, I'm a poor blind sinner and want God to teach me, than about him who is ever saying, I know it, I know it, I'm not ignorant, and yet cleaves to his sins. His guilt remains. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for preserving the record of this remarkable meeting between Jesus and the man born blind. This morning we thank you for those who've been investigating the claims of Jesus and are now thinking seriously about committing their lives to him. Lord, we ask that as they stand on the point of decision that you would encourage them with the knowledge that in giving their lives to Jesus they can be sure that he will never leave them, never forsake them, and that the lovely gifts that Jesus gave to this man can be theirs as well. 
giving them everything they need to follow you for the rest of their lives and then to be with you in glory. Please will you draw them into your family now, for we ask it in Jesus' name.